Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where Alcoholics Anonymous members from around the world share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. You'll find nearly 100 of these awesome interviews in my podcast series. I invite you to scroll through my catalog of past episodes to listen to them all. On today's episode, Mariana L. shares a story that will resonate with those of us who've been raised in families in which frequent moves disrupted the process of simply growing up. In Mariana's case, her family moved numerous times around the United States and Europe when she was young. Her gregarious facade, aided by early and regular use of alcohol, hid her true feelings of loneliness and isolation. Her innate talents as an artist, writer, model, and actress allowed her to achieve moderate success in her late teens and early twenties. But heavy drinking, accompanied by escalating drug use, put a serious drag on Mariana's accomplishments, and she found herself seeking a geographic fix by moving to London. Not surprisingly, the disease had relocated with her, and she soon found herself languishing in self-pity, hopeless demoralization, and the inability to stop drinking. By the time she was 25, her alcoholism kept her mostly homeless with very little left to lose. Like many who are thoroughly beaten by alcohol, Mariana entered AA as her lone option for survival. Since that day in 1991, Mariana has embraced sobriety in Alcoholics Anonymous and has worked the program in all aspects of her life. She met and married a fellow recovering alcoholic and, together they raised a daughter, using the good orderly direction they gained in AA as the foundation of their parenting abilities. And though the gifts of sobriety have materialized in the form of good things, those same gifts have also helped pull her through devastating life events, including her battle with breast cancer. And while she readily admits intervals of infrequent meeting attendance, she's never strayed too far from the program. In fact, recent years of Zoom meetings have ramped up her participation in AA to a maximum level of spiritual confidence and service to others. I believe you'll find many aspects of Mariana's story with which you can readily identify. Her story is instructive, encouraging, and quite entertaining. So please enjoy this episode of AA Recovery Interviews with my splendid friend and AA sister, Mariana L. Hello, my name is Mariana and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Mariana. I am so happy that you were able to join me today on AA Recovery Interviews. You and I have gotten to know each other by virtue of a Zoom meeting that we've been attending together now, I guess, for the last couple of years. That's right. It's really been wonderful to hear you speak on that particular meeting. Well, thank you for asking me. I hope whatever I say is of some help to someone. Yeah, my feeling is if it helps one person, it's all worthwhile. How long have you been sober now? I've been sober Earth. over 30 years. So my sobriety date is December 13, 1991. When you first came in, if somebody had told you that 30 years from then you would be sober, sitting in Alcoholics Anonymous, what would you have told them? I would have said, I'm out of here. <laughs> I know that's not the answer, perhaps, that you would want to hear. But I'd be like, what? I can't take a drink for 30 years? Are you kidding me? That's why I think the one day at a time thing is very helpful. Even though I didn't want to be an alcoholic, and I didn't want to be drunk, and I didn't want to be in the pain I was in, 
I somehow did not connect that with the fact that I really needed to stop drinking, like entirely. Mm -hmm. I thought maybe for a day or a week or a month. I was 25 when I got sober. Mm -hmm. Somebody said to me, you're not going to be able to drink at your wedding, anniversary celebrations, whatever, celebrate that you wouldn't be able to drink no matter what. Hmm. I would have been freaked out. But since people said, you just need to do it today, I was like, okay, today, maybe I can do today. What's interesting about it too, uh, Mariana, is that at the very beginning, we do want to get sober, but we just don't want to have to stop drinking to do it. And exactly. uh, that doesn't work out very well. So what was going on on uh, December 12th of 1991 that made you say, I got to stop. I need help. I was at Bennington College in Vermont. I was an undergraduate mm -hmm. at 25 years of age. I had a full scholarship, almost full scholarship to Bennington. I went there because I'd been trying to get sober already, and I had already been sober for over 90 days, gone to, to a lot of meetings, had a sponsor, but in Minnesota, where my family lived, and took the scholarship in Vermont because I thought, Vermont, I'm in the countryside, it'll be like a sanatorium. There won't be anything to do. <laughs> because I had lived in Europe most of my young adult and teenage life, mm -hmm. I didn't realize Bennington College was a party school. And I got there and I relapsed like mm, six weeks into it. And I relapsed at a party called the Dress to Get Laid Party which is kind of a famous party. And I was one of the people over 21, and the security officer of the school was sober and had seen me at meetings. So I was one of the sober people in charge of this party. And I just somehow thought, Jägermeister's not really alcohol, it's in a punch, these are kids. They don't know what they're doing. Yeah. And that was way both, that was probably in November. Mm-hmm. And I had all the knowledge of AA in my head from the summer where I stayed sober. So the 90 days was over the summer. Correct. So what brought you to that 90-day period? Okay, I'm going to be honest again. You see, we all get here in different ways. And I had a boyfriend mm -hmm. that I worked with in a coffee shop who was sober. Mm -hmm. I had been trying on my own to figure out the fact that the drinking wasn't working for me. And I thought, here's the solution. Uh -huh. The sick, cute guy, I'll go out with him and he'll keep me sober. The thing is, it kept me sober for a while. And mm. then we were on vacation and holiday in um, Hawaii, which is where I'm originally from, mm -hmm. visiting family friends. Mm -hmm. And he decided to break up with me. I had not been a good girlfriend to him, basically. Uh -huh. Not unfaithful or anything, but emotionally not present. Mm -hmm. And he told me that because he was working a program and aware of things. And I decided to start drinking when we broke up. I, I actually went to my first meeting in Hawaii the day we broke up with him, an open meeting. Mm -hmm. And the 12 steps were read out loud. And I actually did have a spiritual experience of some form. I burst into tears. 
Mm. And and I was listening to everybody share and I'm like, oh my God, these are people like me. I understand and identify with everything everyone's saying. Mm -hmm. And it was like my heart was open to the message and to what was going on. So when we got back to Minnesota, I decided to start going to meetings. But what I said to myself in my head was I didn't go to that open heartedness. I went to a stalking of this ex-boyfriend and I got a male sponsor, which mm -hmm. is not traditional, who is a friend of my sister's. So, you know, knew what I was doing was sort of wrong. But as I was doing it, I was getting the message. And I didn't do anything dangerous to this guy. And I eventually got a sponsor who's like, you should go to women's meetings. Come with me to women's meetings. <laughs> so, Well, when you were back in Hawaii, was it he who got you to go to that first AA meeting? Yes. So you, you came in by virtue of that push or nudge or suggestion uh, to go to AA. Uh, were you still sober by the time you get back to Minnesota? Um. Uh, no, I wouldn't say so. I, I it's a long time ago. So shortly after Hawaii, you're you're drinking again. You're back in Minnesota, and that's when you do the ninety days again. Yeah. Starting with uh, trying to work it out your way with a male sponsor and some other things that are oftentimes not recommended. Exactly. So 90 days goes by and you stay sober during that time. What did you hear during that 90 days that made you hopeful or turned you off? To be honest, there wasn't anything I could think of that really turned me off. And that's surprising. I'm not somebody who likes to be told what to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and how to act, which when I got a female sponsor, there was, you know, she was pretty strict. Mm -hmm. But what I did feel on the positive side was I just felt overwhelming relief that there mm -hmm. was a solution and that I wasn't alone. And I could really feel the love from the very first meeting in Hawaii. I just felt like my heart opened up. Mm -hmm. And instead of being afraid, I felt relief and I felt like warmly embraced. And I'm not, I have to say that religious, a person, although I had a very religious upbringing, I sort of rebelled against that yeah. religiousness on a level. But it was like, I just felt so loved and embraced by strangers and people from really different backgrounds. And it made me feel safe and like I, there was hope and I could do this. Did that feeling carry over from Hawaii to the meetings in Minnesota? Did you feel the same way in those meetings that you felt in Hawaii? Absolutely. Yeah, pretty much at the beginning, it was every meeting. I was just so relieved. I needed mm -hmm. to go to more than a meeting a day. And I also, and I always say this to new and especially young people getting sober, it was important for me to go to meetings with other young people. Sure. Um, so at, at, like there was a meeting I went to and one of my best friends still from that time was at this meeting at the University of Minnesota where I eventually, when Bennington didn't work out, ended up getting my degree from. Mm -hmm. And we socialized a lot after the meetings, like going to coffee shops and 
diners. And that was a huge part of staying sober because it was actually fun. And I had all these new friends that mm -hmm. I had deep emotional connections with. And I still do. <laughs> I still do with those people. I have a friend who, who says that the disease of alcoholism if it's a disease of isolation, then the cure is socialization. Absolutely. And uh, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. And, and that fellowship can be so important both early on and throughout a person's recovery. So for 90 days, you stayed sober. And then you went to school at that point in, yeah. in Minnesota? I ended up in Minnesota because my parents had moved there from Chicago while I was living in England and drinking a lot. That's where most of my drinking was, in London. So I was desperate to finish a university degree because I hadn't done that because mm -hmm. I had been drinking and doing other stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, part of the impetus for actually getting sober was that I knew I was going back to college and I had two years left and I really wanted to finish it. And I was 25 already. So, and I come from, like my dad was a vice president of university at that time. I come from many academics and writers. That's my family. So it was embarrassing. I felt a lot of shame about not having a university degree. Mm -hmm. So, um, Bennington, that was the idea behind it. So you were there for just a short time then, huh? The master. I didn't fail, but I barely passed classes. They knew I was honest about what was going on with me. And I have to say there were two professors who helped me tremendously to get sober. Two amazing, talented, famous artists just be human beings and help me. They knew I was having issues. On December 13th, I'll say, I wasn't able to go home. I kept missing flights. Mm -hmm. And I was one of the last kids in the college dorms. And they basically packed my things for me, bundled me up, and got me on an Amtrak train back to the Midwest from Vermont. And that was the last you saw of Bennington at that point? Yes. And I did go to AA meetings there until I started drinking again. So you had enough AA under your belt at that point. Yes. You, I guess, would have known, if not emotionally, but let's say even intellectually, you would have known that uh, you were not applying your AA program to what was going on around you at Bennington. Correct, because it was a long walk through a dark forest to get into in the meetings. So what happened was I stopped going to meetings and there were only two other students I knew who were sober and we relapsed together. It was like, we're like, we're like, let's do it together. We're like, let's throw in the towel. And it was really devastating to me because Bennington said, you can come back. If you're sober, you can come back, we'll help you. And with my sponsor, I made the decision that it was unlikely that I could stay sober given the circumstances that I needed to stay with this really huge AA community in St. Paul, Minnesota with a lot of young people and that I could apply to universities there, which I did. Yeah. And got in and was very successful. But it took the AA and and that environment 
and going back and leaving Bennington to, to be able to do that. Yeah. You'd mentioned just a little bit earlier about your upbringing. I was just curious, when you look back, can you point to uh, a time in your life when you first took a drink or first noticed that people were taking drinks? What was that like? Well, my background is I'm from Honolulu, Hawaii originally. My dad was a professor at the university there. My mother is from Germany. My parents mm. met on holiday in Greece. And so I was brought up very European with wine and beer around. Neither of my parents are big drinkers. Mm -hmm. There was no one in my immediate family who drank a lot. Mm -hmm. But alcohol was used for two things, celebrations and illness. So like if I had a toothache, you know, there would be some brandy or cognac rubbed mm -hmm. on my gums. We flew because my mother's family was in Germany. We had a lot of long flights on Olulu to Frankfurt, Munich. So I got knocked out. Like they give me sips of whiskey sour. I can taste the whiskey sour talking about it because I loved it because it made me feel so warm and cuddly and cozy on these long airplane flights. And you were just a child? Yeah, I was European. Yeah. And so, like, I was always allowed to have wine, little sips of wine or champagne sure. or beer, which, to be honest, is my was my favorite of all the alcohol. Mm -hmm. It's in my genes, I think. It can't be helped. So. <laughs> but we moved to Germany from Hawaii because my mom wanted to go back to Germany when I was six. Mm -hmm. And that was a huge transition going from Honolulu, Hawaii, hippie days, you know, late 60s, early 70s, to Munich and Bavaria, which is a very conservative place. So much so that, like, I had a curtsy to old rel older relatives, <laughs> and I had to dress much more formally. And also my grandmother that I was really close to, who used to come to Hawaii every winter, had a stroke the day we arrived in Germany, which was mm. a big shock to my mom. And the truth is, it was a bit of a trauma time, which is where I remember taking my first drink on my own. Mm -hmm. So my parents' marriage almost fell apart. That is the truth of why my mom wanted to go back to Germany. But they reconciled and my dad ended up coming with us. And we took this epic journey of flying to California, train across the U.S., and then a transatlantic crossing on a ship to get to Germany. And, and my mom couldn't reach my grandmother. And we were initially going to be living with her in Munich. Mm -hmm. That was the plan. And my mother finally heard from her sister that my grandmother had had a stroke and was in the hospital. And I was oh. almost six. And my sister had recently been born. So I had this one-year-old sister. Mm -hmm. And my mother was a refugee in the Second World War. My family was from Prussia to Bavaria and was a PTSD person very much so but I didn't know that as a kid mm -hmm. and the whole family was really shaken up you know like a lot of families have been in Europe from the mm -hmm. war and mm -hmm. continue to be there's still migrants and refugees everywhere Ukraine mm -hmm. right now and you really inherit that panic and that trauma and I didn't know that at the time but we got to Munich my mother was out of it. My parent, I knew there was something up with my parents. And my aunt, who lived next door to my grandmother, was an alcoholic. 
And mm-hmm. I remember people talking about it, but certainly in hindsight, I make that connection. I had heard her say, I've ha- I'm very stressed. I've had a hard day. I need a drink. And so when I, I was left alone because it was like emergency time in my family a lot. And I was uh-huh. six. So I figured out how to, you know, like these ceramic tops on beer bottles, old <laughs> yeah. fashioned. I remember going to the fridge, figuring out how to open that, pouring the beer in a glass and drinking it because I was like, oh, if you're stressed, which I was, yeah. you need a drink. And so I, t- I took the beer and the beer tasted like Hawaii to me. And I was very homesick because mm. it, it was warm. And I thought it tasted vaguely like coconuts for some reason. And that was my first memory of going, seeking it out for solace. Because mm. I was stressed and I didn't want to deal with emotions. It's a very clear memory. I like to say I was a social drinker as a child <laughs> until it was more readily available. As a kid, let's say six years old through middle or high school, what was that progression like of the actual drinking itself? Were you doing it all the time, some of the time, every now and then? No, it wasn't like getting drunk, partying, drinking until 14, mm-hmm. sort of the usual time for most people, 13, 14. I do remember having a little, so I'm half Jewish as well as half non-Jewish German. That in itself is a complicated place to live in. (laughs) So my parents' marriage was not very popular with the Jewish side of the family. It was totally fine with my German side, not fine with my Jewish side, but it got resolved. So how long did you live in Germany? For three years. So I started uh-huh. school there. I'm bilingual, always have been. Um, I actually have a lot of German sponsees right now, which is special for me to be able to talk about sobriety in German, because that is my emotive, emotional language. What I was going to say, which is why I went into the Jewish stuff, is so, you know, you there'd be Manischewitz around it, like my Jewish grandparents' place. And I remember getting my sister drunk when she was like three. I snuck the Manischewitz during Passover. So Passover, then Christmas, New Year's, champagne, wine. You know, we had all the holidays. I should also tell you, my parents had a Muslim guru because they were hippies. So there was a lot going on with religion and all of the monotheism was represented. So there was Ramadan, there was Yom Kippur, there was Lent, you know, and then there was all the partying around that. My parents, though, were spiritual. I call Mm -hmm. them like spiritual seekers or actually spiritual alcoholics because they sought out the spirituality much in the same way as I sought alcohol and drugs. They weren't doing it with alcohol or drugs themselves. No, they were doing it with spiritual seeking. It was like very over the top. That must have been really (laughs) confusing to you as a kid, having all those religions swirling around, all the different rituals and different uh, events. How did you cope with that? all that going on around you? Clearly drinking, eventually, because it, it's it's very heavy to live with that as a child. I mean, it's made me who I am, and it's made me 
all the traveling, all the different cultures, all the different religions make me who I am. And I am, I prize it as much as it was a burden for me as a young person. We would have all sorts of amazing people show up at our house and people would spend long evenings after dinner talking about spirituality and God um, from all different religions, even like Baha'i and Hindu. So, but it's hard as yeah. a young kid, you just want to have fun, you know, and you don't want to be burdened with life and death questions. And uh, I just wasn't ready. You're not ready for it. Yeah. The way it was so omnipresent. And I use omnipresent very precisely in this. Like God was omnipresent, but it didn't feel benevolent to me. That background did make me open to the message when I got to yeah. AA in an interesting way, because I was used to groups and people talking about God and spirituality. Um, but when I was 14, you know, I was in high school, I was um, already semi-professionally working in theater and film. I had an agent. I ended up going to performing arts high school in Chicago. We moved a lot. And what happened, I was with a lot of adults, like in community theaters, mm -hmm. and I looked old for my age. I never got carded for alcohol, especially because I was with people in their 20s and 30s often. And so it was very available for me. Mm -hmm. My parents weren't strict. What they did do is if I came home drunk, like if I was hungover, they'd made me go to church on Sunday, let's say, and sit near the organ. Or um, they thought it was kind of funny, and they didn't—they didn't really think it was a problem yeah. ever. They thought I was crazy. They didn't think the alcohol was the problem. They thought I was a difficult child. During that time, you and your folks were not seeing each other all that much. I mean, because of what you were doing. Yes and no. My parents were going to meditation groups, choir practice. They traveled a lot. Um, so I was, I had a sister five years younger than I have a sister five years younger than me. I was in charge of watching her. My grandmother who had the stroke also lived with us mm -hmm. and she was my anchor because my parents were kind of, they weren't alcoholics. That doesn't mean they didn't have issues. Like I said, PTSD, the spiritual seeking, mm -hmm. it was sort of generation where kids were kind of neglected parents were very into themselves in that generation i felt very protective of my mother in particular because of i grew up hearing the stories of having lost everything and trauma you know my her aunt was burnt alive with a bunch of women and children mm. in a building and i as a child heard these stories and I knew she had been starving and, you know, my grandfather refused to join the Nazi party. So he lost his job and the family was really impoverished. So, I mean, literally starving. Mm. So it was terrible if you were Jewish, but it wasn't great if you weren't full on into the Nazis as a German either. Yeah. It was not a good time. And you were getting bombed by Americans and British soldiers and so I felt very protective over her, which is not an easy place to be as a child. Mm -hmm. 
And I was actually very weirdly close to my family. I was sort of like the caretaker of my sister, my mother, my grandmother, who was paralyzed on one side. My dad could be very verbally abusive to me, uh, very critical of me. Mm -hmm. I felt very lonely. And the major reason was I went to, I think, eight or nine different schools growing up because we moved so much. Mm -hmm. And I was bullied relentlessly at school at different places. I was heartbroken when we left Germany. I loved this village we ended up living in. We moved again and we ended up in Lincolnwood in Skokie, Illinois, just when neo-Nazis were threatening to march there. Mm -hmm. And we spoke German at home. I have a slight German accent. So I was bullied for being German, even though I'm half Jewish at that school. And home felt a bit nuts because I was the like adult in the house in a weird way, except for my grandmother who helped me. So I wouldn't call my situation normal. I wouldn't say it was totally neglect. Mm -hmm. My parents, I really stand by this and it's in my heart now, did the best they absolutely could with who they were. And my mother's passed away, my father's still alive. Mm -hmm. And I'm very close to him now, but it took a lot of work and sobriety to feel that. What were you doing at that time to try and deal with all that? It seems like it's just piling up and piling up. Well, in the end, it was the alcohol. It was really self-medication. You know, Mm. some people go into it as... You know, it's fun, it's a laugh, it's a party. When I was 14 and it really sort of took over, it was sort of a relief to have the alcohol around more. But um, I had been so bullied and feeling so different from people that the idea of when you start having boyfriends, you know, in my case, because I'm Mm -hmm. inclined that way and I just didn't feel like anybody would want me because of my experience at school. But I also was an attractive young woman. And Mm -hmm. so negotiating that, especially being in the performing arts and being judged for how you look all the time and never feeling good enough, alcohol was sort of a solve to those feelings of being different and insecure and helping me to talk to boys at parties. Mm -hmm. It was hard for me. I'm a very extroverted person, but I don't think naturally I am. Because when we were locked down in the pandemic, my husband and daughter commented on how happy I seemed to be not to have to go anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) It was true. Under this terrible circumstance, I was so happy to have us all at home and we travel a lot and have very social lives to all be quiet. And I think I actually am introverted, but because of my parents being extroverts and moving and traveling a lot, Mm -hmm. I was forced to act like an extrovert. And what helped me in that was having a drink or two or three or four until it didn't help and it was bad. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm curious about that because there there comes a point at which we know why we're drinking and 
there's a, there's a realization that gets acknowledged and then gets pushed to the side. Did you have an experience like that where, where you knew why you were drinking and what did you do with that knowledge? I knew that the alcohol would make me feel warm and comfortable and disengage my critical thought process about myself and maybe even about others. Like I ended up making the choice to go to high school, finish high school in England and live in England as a young adult because I felt so rejected by the United States mm. that I started rejecting everything about the United States and the people. So to disengage that, because I didn't want to live in that ne negativity all the time, that alcohol. And I, I actually didn't do drugs in high school at all. I drew a line. I was like, well, alcohol is fine, you know? But drugs is a mm -hmm. is a bridge too far, you know. Until I was eighteen, that's what I told myself. I even limited the drugs, <laughs> you know. Like I, I was like, at eighteen, it's fine because then it's legal or something. I well, you're know. legal, right? I get that. I'm legal. I, it, I who knows. So I start drinking. I'm in this performing arts high school, and what ended up happening is the teachers were messing around with the students. Oh no! And I was the whistleblower on that. And my parents were like, mm, we need to take her out. They didn't actually know. I thought they knew. They knew something was going on with me and that things were weird mm -hmm. at school because I stopped speaking, basically. Uh, the alcohol was not effective enough when I was hearing about this. Nobody did anything to me. But my friends were confiding in me and I found it. It's like the situation I was in with my mother, you know, with hearing these these things I couldn't even fully comprehend at 14, 15. It was so, I just, and it was like a teacher I loved who was doing oh. this. And I didn't even know at that point that men could have sex with men or women with women. Uh -huh. It's just, I was very naive and sheltered for my age. I almost like really had like a nervous breakdown about it. So my parents sent me to my godparents in Hawaii, the ones I was with when I broke up with my husband and went to my first meeting. Uh -huh. My mm. godfather was a Lutheran pastor. So they are prominent in helping me to get sober actually too. Uh -huh. And in Hawaii, my dream was always to go live in England. So that happened. I got a partial scholarship for school. I was a good student, despite all my craziness. Mm. Always a big reader. I used books and fancy life. You know, I was a writer. I started writing stories and drawing, painting and drawing when I was really young, before the alcohol became more prominent. And that continued as part of my uh, self-soothing. It's a very isolating lifestyle. Uh, writing and reading. It's something you're doing by yourself alone, better done alone, obviously. But 
sounds like that that whole experience with what happened with the performing arts high school was a huge disappointment to you. Heartbreaking. Did you find that you started drinking heavier or more frequently or with more intent at that point? I didn't until I got to England at 16. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I think part of the impetus for going to England, because, you know, I spent time in Europe. I knew there weren't as many restrictions about the drinking. Mm -hmm. And in hindsight, I'm sure that was part of my reasoning to go there. But I convinced myself and the people around me it was about Shakespeare and I wanted to be a Shakespearean actress or I wanted to be a playwright or a writer, which in fact I am now a writer. I was really pretty heartbroken because since I was little, despite all the reading and the drawing, I really wanted to be an actress. That's all I wanted to do since I was a little kid because I could disappear into being other people and not myself. You could select the persona that you want on any given day. I get that. Exactly. Being back in England with all the pubs and everything else, uh, right. especially drinking beer, there's a lot more society and conviviality associated with that. Uh, were you enjoying yourself more in England when it came to drinking? Oh, my God. Like, it from the get-go, <laughs> England. I mean, you know, in the beginning, it was sort of fun and games. Yeah. Sort of, but not really, because I think my second night so my first opportunity before the school to go to england was a summer camp mm -hmm. in in portugal and i stopped and stayed with friends of my parents mm -hmm. in england outside of windsor mm -hmm. and i my parents won't be there mm -hmm. so i was like i'm down wow. with it and second night i was totally blotto drunk mm -hmm. we went to a pub called the jolly butcher as they are in England. I saw a sign saying you had to be 18 years old to drink. And I'm like, oh, damn, I thought there was no restriction. And so somebody asked me, I was with a group of young people, and uh, one of the cousins said, do you want a cider? Because they asked me what I wanted. And I had no idea. I'm like, oh, my God, I'm going to actually be able to drink in a public space. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, he knows I'm 16. And I thought it was apple cider, like non-alcoholic, like in America. Yeah. But it was hard cider, which I didn't even know about. And once I realized I could drink alcohol, I was like, OK, what do you guys recommend? And I had like a white Russian. I had a rum and coke. I had heard like the Beatles ordering that our day's night or something. Uh -huh. And I, I think I was totally sick. Oh, geez. And I remember like making out with their cousin, uh -huh. who then apparently was in love with me. And I pretended I couldn't remember it because I was not in love with him. <laughs> so I was like, it's my first night in England. Give me a chance. I want to see other boys. We'll be right back. My friends, if you've enjoyed my AA Recovery interview series and my Big Book podcast, check out Lost Stories of the Big Book, 30 original stories from the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous, missing from the third and fourth editions. It's an engaging audiobook I narrated to bring these stories to life for AA members who've never seen them. These timeless testimonials were originally cut to make room for newer stories in the third and fourth editions but their vitally important messages of hope are as meaningful today as when they were first published. 
Many listeners will hear these stories for the first time. Lost Stories of the Big Book is available on Audible, Amazon, and iTunes. It's also available as a Kindle book, if you'd like to read along. You're going to love it. And we're back. So you didn't legitimately black out. You blacked out from convenience to have an excuse. Yes. And I use that often over the years. I often wish I had fully blacked out in my drinking. I never did. I had sort of beige brownouts. My behavior was not what I would like, but I would use, oh, I was blacked out as an excuse for my behavior. Horrible. Yeah, the price you pay for that, Mariana, is that you know what really went on. I know. Whereas when you're in a legitimate blackout, you can claim that you don't and you're telling the truth. But uh, otherwise, it gets pretty dicey. So you're there in England. You finished high school in England. Yes. Is that when you came back to the States? No. I mean, I'd be home for summers. Yes. And it was always a pain to try and figure out the alcohol. Mm-hmm. And my mother kind of knew something's up because she said I'd arrive home sort of jaundiced looking. And I started having panic attacks because I was going through alcohol withdrawals when I came back. So you were trying not to drink at that point? Well, it wasn't trying. It was like I couldn't drink like how I did in England because I was under 21 drinking age was 21. Yeah. And I created this sort of fake ID, but it didn't always work. Mm. And I was living with my parents over the summer. It was like I had, it was harder. So I would go from like flat out drinking. And I have to tell you, in my journal and in letters home, my mother passed away and I got all the letters she saved Uh that I wrote to her. I knew there was something going on. I read a letter out to my 21-year-old daughter recently Mm -hmm. that I wrote to my mother about how I was breaking up with his boyfriend. And the reason in the letter, which I totally forgot, was that he was giving me a hard time about my drinking. Mm. It's when I was 17, 16 Mm -hmm. or 17. Mm. And I said, you know, he was older than me. And I'm like, he just doesn't understand what it's like being young. And he's treating me like a kid. And blah, blah, blah. I don't know. I don't remember. That's the reason why I broke up with him. Yeah. Or I was lying and he broke up with me about it. How prophetic. It was. And I knew within months after that in high school in England, Mm -hmm. in my journal, it's like, I think I have a problem with alcohol. I'm not going to drink tomorrow. And I have entries where I'm like, my hand is shaking because I drank too much. And like, I, I, have journals Uh at 17, 18, I knew there was a problem. I knew already before that, that I was using it as self-soothing, self-medication. And at that point, I knew it wasn't working, that it was having negative consequences. And the panic attacks started because I started smoking hash as well at 18. And when I got to the States for my summer holiday, Mm -hmm. I stopped all of it. And that's when the panic attacks and anxiety started. And then I'd go back to England and I would use drugs and alcohol to kind of calm my panic. I started taking Mm -hmm. Valium, Xanax, Percocet, things like that. So it was like a circle. 
It sounds like a really tough spiral to have to be in. I mean, it's it's like getting sober, having to go through withdrawals and anxiety for three months or two months or however long you stayed. And then you go back and, ah, oh, I'm back. Yes. But it sounds like that was really disturbing and, and destructive to that particular part of your life. Yeah, and it's actually kind of worse because in the England high school at that time, still is to a certain extent, you have these exams at the end of two years that determine whether you go to university or not. It's over several days and weeks. Mm -hmm. And at the time I was taking them, your whole grade for two years was determined by these exams. And one of the exams I was too hungover to wake up for, to go to. Mm -hmm. And I was one of the star students Mm -hmm. at the school and I was put up to go to Cambridge, like your school has to say you're good enough to apply to Oxford at Cambridge. And I just totally blew. That was like the dream. But I really loved literature, poetry, plays. Yeah, it was devastating to me. I couldn't go to to university. Plus, my parents were getting reports that I was showing up to class singing show tunes, which unfortunately I remember I wasn't blacked out for. And I was disruptive. And so my father's like, you're not going, I'm not paying for you to go to university in America or England, even if you get in, forget it. You need to get yourself sorted out. Again, alcohol was not perceived as the problem. They wanted to see me as crazy over being an alcoholic. It was like too shameful. And my father said, Jews aren't alcoholics. That was his thing. I'm like, I don't think that's true. That's about as stereotypical as you can get, but right. a lot of people think think that. So it sounds to me like there was a huge conflict for you between the dreams and, and aspirations you had for university and the drinking that you were doing at the time. Did you draw an actual connection there uh, with it? And what were your realizations about it as it was unfolding? Well, I had moments over the next few years. So I did have to go back to the United States for I think it was about six months. And during that time, I met a lot of uh, students at Northwestern University in Evanston Mm -hmm. who were foreign exchange students like Germans and Greeks. And so we all partied pretty hard, but it wasn't full, full on like it was in England. And it didn't feel lonely. It actually felt Like, I think I had an opportunity at that point to be like a normal heavy drinker and maybe, (laughs) maybe, you know, because it wasn't, my consequences weren't terrible at that point, those six months. And there were a few periods in my life where I could have maybe realized and stopped then, or, or maybe it wouldn't have gone so deep. Yeah, and you also have the the situation where the good stuff that's happening to you while you're not drinking or using drugs, in in my case, the the good things that happen during that period of time, even though they may continue to happen, somewhere along the way, the thought comes up of they'll feel even better. Yes. If now that now that I know there are good times, I can start drinking and using using again because these two things will go together. To me, that's the ultimate lie yes. that the alcoholism disease tells us, is that we can continue to enjoy life, even though there's a part of us that knows we're destroying it. 
Well, that's, that is the disease. You get easily tricked. Like if things are going well, like if I can stop for a while, that's what my situation was like for years. I'm like, oh, I can stop for a week or a month or something. I was like, oh, I may as well just have a good time. Nothing's at stake here. But then it would get too much and I'd stop. And then when I stopped, I thought I could, I'm like, everything's fine. Well, I can the, deal the with The great it. irony there for all alcoholics, I think for myself included, is that part of the ways we convince ourselves that we're not alcoholic is to be able to stop for a period of time. Exactly. Uh, even when people pointed out to me that I might be having a problem with it, my response would always be, oh, I don't, I can stop whenever I want. Or, you know, last month I stopped for two weeks and it wasn't, wasn't a big deal. It was a big deal, but who wants to admit it? It was, right. Let me ask you now to, to kind of fast forward us a little bit past college and up to the point at which you acknowledged your problem and sought out Alcoholics Anonymous. What did that period of time look like? How many years was that? So the high school thing was 18. I finally got sober at 25. So that year is what, those years is what I'm describing. I went to art school in England Mm -hmm. for a while. That's how I sorted out my visas because all I wanted to do was go back to England. I felt like I was either sabotaging myself or things were happening like about the acting Mm -hmm. and then about going to Cambridge. Mm -hmm. I was like, well, I could go to art school and I could drink and be in England. But my father wasn't going to pay for any of it. So I'd have like stints in summers or that six month period mm. where I would go and work in the US. I was like manager of clothing stores. I was also modeling. Mm-hmm. That's where I made the most money from, especially hair modeling. I have a lot of long hair. And then I get money together, go to England. I also had a boyfriend there who was very codependent and very protective of my alcoholism. His father died of alcoholism Mm. six months before he met me. And it was like he met me drunk at a nightclub and got me safely home, didn't take advantage of me. And I thought, this is the man I need to be with. (laughs) This is the guy. This is it. The mark of the man. (laughs) Exactly. He was like 11 years older than me. He was actually very kind to me, but it, I think it dragged out my alcoholism. I think I would have gotten sober. That's not his fault. That's sort of me because he was so protective and he financially supported me a lot. I lived with him. If he had to go out of town for work or anything, he would have a friend what like take care of me, make sure I get home safely. You know, while that seems creepy, it was like very comforting to me and I would have had more and worse consequences sooner I think had it not been for for him however it protected me from having some of the consequences I've heard of in the in the rooms you know at meetings I was in one relationship the whole time of the majority of my heavy drinking. So you were behind closed doors with one person being able to drink as much as you wanted with a man who, I take it, drank right along with you? Not at all. He didn't drink at all? Not really. No, no, he drank, but like, you know, a pint of Guinness or like half a pint. And he was the one who actually 
we broke up and part of it was the drinking and my behavior. Like that was probably a huge part of it. How far into your relationship did that happen? Four years. We were together for four years. So I met him when I was 18. Yeah. I told him I was 21 because he was 29 and I didn't want to be so young. So it took a year for him to find out how old I was at my parents' house, meeting my parents, and it was my birthday, so I I was like, oh no, I'm going to have to come clean. Mom, you got the candles wrong. Uh, Yeah, if that's not alcoholic behavior, I don't know what is, that whole thing. The fact he stayed with me, he was kind of trapped, Mm -hmm. like meeting my parents, and we were living together, and he was shocked and horrified. Oh, so awful, I'm so embarrassed about that. This poor guy. I ended up stealing money from him when we mm. broke up. He didn't have the heart to throw me out on the street because I had no money. So he let me stay at our apartment until I found a place. And I was having trouble holding down a job. My job officially was I was a photographer. Mm. I studied photography in art school and was a photographer's mm-hmm. assistant. People loved my work. Mm-hmm. Everybody was trying to help me, and I just ruined one opportunity over the next. I literally pissed it away, as people say, like literally did that because of my drinking and uh, occasional drug use, but it was mainly the drinking. Uh And this is after you broke up with him? No, this is all during the relationship. And then the breakup, I was, he felt bad for me and responsible for me and had me stay in his apartment. And that's when the drinking got even worse. And I was stealing money from him you know it was just messed up he never said he figured it out he told me when i was making amends Uh he knew and i didn't have to pay him back um he eventually literally locked me out of the apartment and said he just couldn't do it anymore and i spent my last year before going back to america to minnesota my sister was sent to haul me back uh sleeping on friends sofas Mm -hmm. and relying on the kindness of strangers i was like blanche dubois i was on people's sofas the last place was a council estate in south london which is what people in america would call a housing project I often say I went from Princess Diana wearing Laura Ashley pearl pearl necklaces to I colored my hair reddish pink and looked like Susie and the Banshees, (laughs) if you know who that is, like a goth. I had dark hair and was wearing ripped tights and short Mm -hmm. shorts and like go-go boots and looked like a prostitute, quite frankly. It was kind of fashionable, I thought, but I looked like I was a streetwalker, basically. So your sister comes, she she brings you back to the States, and then you had that 90-day period sobriety? No, it took a couple of years. I was drinking in Minnesota and hated it because I was living at home. I didn't have any money, no place to go. But then I met a guy, there was always a guy, and I mean, I was like a monogamous, serial Uh monogamous, and I always picked guys who would look after me, like total codependence. And I was very lucky. They were all like lovely, kind guys that 
I still probably owe some major amends yeah. to, but I, um, yeah, so the, the, I would stay with my boyfriend and we were doing bomb mm-hmm. hits and that broke up again because of my drinking. Then the boyfriend who was sober and then the 90 yeah. days. You knew enough from 90 days of AA to, I guess, have made the decision that you could continue on in the program and you made the decision not to, I guess, when you went over to Bennington, but you weren't yet ready. You had not had enough at that point. Is that a safe assumption? Yeah, I think I hadn't sorted out um, the sponsorship situation. Mm. And I also wasn't doing service work. I always say that's super important. I, um, and I'm not mm-hmm. actually, when I think back on it, I you know, I pretty much did 90, 90 meetings, but I might've skipped some. I wasn't really, I had bought into the program. I did like a lot about it, which surprised me, but I was still hoping okay. the relationship would, I was still doing it for the relationship. When I came back from Bennington, it it was, I was doing it because that last relapse was yeah. just, oh, I felt terrible about myself, so much shame. I was baffled at how it happened. And I have stayed sober in part because I am scared I'm not going to be able to come back from another relapse because it was so demoralizing, so hard. I felt suicidal that you're talking about. So you got into AA, even though it was mostly because of a relationship, but then a lot of us get to AA because of that. I got to AA for the same reasons. My wife said, uh, you know, you can keep drinking and using drugs all you want. And I thought, wow, that's great, wonderful. She said, but I won't be here. I won't be here to watch it. And she was she was very serious, and she came, you know, her dad was a was a falling down alcoholic who went back and forth into AA for a long time and ended up dying of the disease. So, I mean, I know why women who come from that ba- kind of background would stick with somebody like me, uh, to, you know, to, to be able to fix a problem that she couldn't fix when she was a little kid with her dad. But it was just enough to make me say, okay, for the sake of this relationship, I will do this and enter Sounds to me like that's kind of what you did when you came in, huh? Yes, that is what I did. And I was just thinking when you were speaking about your wife huh. that that was the situation for my boyfriend in England those four years. I never realized that. So thank you for talking about that because I realized he was trying to fix me because he wasn't able to fix his father, Yeah, I think. Uh, that makes me sad well, and and grateful for you. It makes me compassionate towards him. I often ask the question, with all the knowledge and experience you have from all your years in AA, if there was a period of time you could go back to armed with that information and experience, what age, Mariana, would you go back to first and what would you tell her that might make a difference in her life? Oh, wow. That's such an amazingly good question. I know exactly the age. I would go back to high school in England. So I'd say 17, probably. I have to tell you, I'm a 
I'm about to apply to a graduate program in Cambridge, and I'm doing that as an amend to myself, whether I get in or oh, not. Yeah. I want to be able to apply to a program sober, doing the best I can, and then I win or lose, but I do it, you know, fairly. So I would go back to myself in high school in England and say, you have so many opportunities, so many people who love you and are wanting to help you and are rooting for you, and you are smart, and you are beautiful, and you don't have to please others. Just do your work. Just study what you love, and you'll be fine, and it'll work out. And the reason is because despite 30 years of sobriety, I still feel like there's yeah. some heartbreak and amends I need to make to myself, really, about the choices I made as a young woman. Actually, talking to you now, thinking back on that boyfriend in that time, because sometimes I'll still be resentful at him for being older and going out with me, and mm. yet I lied to him. Yet I stole from him. I was a terrible girlfriend. And I, when you said that, I feel very emotional now. Because when you were talking about your wife, your sobriety, I was like, had that feeling of empathy and compassion for him. And also for myself at that time, that young person who made very poor decisions. Mm -hmm. And genetically was predisposition to alcoholism, I'm sure. On the other hand, saying all of that, and I feel this is so important to say, I really feel like the alcoholism mm -hmm. and all those experiences, those that I regret even, have made me who I am. And that being an Alcoholics Anonymous has been the biggest, most amazing gift in my life, being an alcoholic in the end has been this amazing gift. Because I met my husband at a Christmas party at my sponsor's house. He's also sober. We've been sober together. We've been together since 1995. Wow, congratulations on that. Thank you. We have a beautiful, amazing 21-year-old daughter. And I have amazing friends. And a life, like people say, it's such a cliche beyond my wildest dreams and expectations. It's true. I've had mm -hmm. breast cancer during my sobriety. I've lost my mother, but I made through, all, got through all of that with love and support from people I know in AA. I've been a better friend to people outside of the program because of this. So I just want to make sure I get that in, the sobriety part. When you were going through some of the most difficult times, was your spiritual connectedness strained or pulled? And I'm not quite sure how to ask this question, but I, I remember there were times, you know, a few very difficult things I went through where I thought, God, I've been doing all this stuff. I'm, I've, I'm saying I'm so spiritual, but I cannot get calm in this situation or whatever. Did you ever face that? I've faced that in particular um, with my 
anxiety issues. So when I got sober, which is very important to mention, mm-hmm. um, I was left with those panic attacks and anxiety that I was sort of self-medicating for. And I couldn't medicate for them in the way I had. And I um, was stuck in St. Paul, Minnesota, because I was too afraid to leave a certain neighborhood. I could barely leave the house. I was afraid of flying. That's why I didn't end up back in England. And I was scared because of the alcoholism, too. I was like, why? Why do I have all this stuff? Why did God give me, like, the alcoholism and the anxiety, and I'm just not a functioning human Mm. being. And why do I need to do all of this stuff to just be normal, show up at meetings? And I definitely had moments like that. But in the hard times, like when I had cancer, and when my mom was passing away, I really felt this strong, benevolent presence that's the only way I can describe it, like warmth and love and so much love from people in and out of the program that I knew people I didn't even know would reach out and support me. Like people who heard I had cancer or heard Mm. my mother was passing away. Like people you sometimes think are going to be there for hard times aren't. Mm -hmm. But what happens is people that you may not even know yet will be there, strangers. And I just felt so much support and love during the hard times, like in that first year of sobriety, so much so. And I have to be honest, in 30 years, There are times when I didn't go to meetings regularly, Mm -hmm. especially when I was the mother of a young child. Thank God for Zoom now. That makes it so much easier for parents and for people with disabilities and such a gift. But um, there were times when I just couldn't get to meetings. There were probably years between my 10th and 20th year where I wasn't going to meetings that often. And there would be times, there are still times, when I just am not loving the meeting or what I'm hearing. But the thing is, I've always shown up. I've always, I learned from AA to ask for help. And that's just not about alcohol. Mm -hmm. Because I always say alcohol is only mentioned in the first step of the 12 steps. The rest is about living life. People like to say worker among workers, but I like to say like a fellow among fellows, a human among humans, you know, practice these principles in all our affairs. Mm -hmm. So I've learned to be a better wife, friend, mother through the steps and the program and the things I've learned by just showing up to meetings. Even if I'm not listening that much, there's something about the practice of going for an hour and shutting up. (laughs) You mentioned in there something that I've run into a few friends recently who had taken somewhat of a hiatus. I mean, the uh, pandemic was a great reason to not go to meetings and then use the not liking Zoom excuse for not going to meetings. And I've run into some people who have taken that I'm calling it a hiatus, but, you know, something that was good for them, they stopped doing it, but they came back to it at some point. They somehow made it back. Somebody who's listening to your story, who hears about that period of time 
in between having been active and then not being so active and then being active again. What is there about this period of activity in the last, say, 10 years that makes you feel like this is the last time you're going to have to do that? What would I say now? For me, Zoom has been an amazing revolution in my sobriety because so many reasons. So I basically did like April 2020 to say like for a year, I basically went to one or two or three meetings a day because there wasn't that much going on. And my husband to my husband was really out of AA for a while, not drinking, not using, Mm -hmm. but he started, you know, we all started on FaceTime and then Zoom AA meetings, and he goes to a meeting at least once a day. And for both of us, we have our relationships better. Here's the difference. I may not have been drinking during the times I didn't go to meetings that often or doing drugs, but bad behaviors creeped in. Like I was angry more easily, more often. Mm -hmm. I was like negative thinking the anxiety was greater. Mm-hmm. Um, I developed high blood pressure. That was probably genetic, nothing to do with it. But, you know, it helps to be more chill if you have high blood pressure. So although I traveled a lot, I was still a very nervous flyer. Mm-hmm. I traveled a tremendous amount. And something happened by going to meetings a lot again that I chilled out about the flying. I would text with... AA friends on Wi-Fi on flights and I just was like you know I'm being of service I've done a good job in life to the best of my ability so I'm content with my life and I feel more relaxed in general I also have to say a blood pressure medication I'm on which I need to be on for my blood pressure also seems to chill me out. Oh, yeah. So I'm in a big believer. And if you have outside issues, you do what medical people suggest. I had to do that with my depression. Uh, thank God I did, because the people in AA didn't know how to advise me on that. It was a medical problem that didn't have an, didn't have an AA answer to it. But Correct. it makes a big difference when you're on the right kind of meds and you're staying active in your program. That's the way I look at it. The last thing you just said is, to me, the pinnacle of this entire interview, Mariana, and that is you said, I'm content. And to me, what content in AA means is somebody who is comfortable in their own skin as a result of doing the things that we're told to do on a daily basis, being there for other people. You strike me as a, as a really outstanding member of the program, but also a beautiful person. And the fact that you're you know, willing to be there for all these people on Zoom and German-speaking people, it, you know, it's a unique set of, of attributes mm-hmm. that you have that make a big difference in people's lives. I'd suggest you listen to some of the interviews on your long flights. I intend to. I actually intend to. (laughs) I am so glad you and I had the chance to spend this time together today. Uh, You're an extraordinary person, and I I wish you all the best in your sobriety, and I look forward to hearing and seeing you with a different set of eyes and ears than I had prior to today when I see you in that meeting. And As I tell all my guests, I love you, and I honor your commitment to continuous sobriety. It's a God thing that you and I had the opportunity to share on this day, 
There'll never be another time like this, and I'll cherish the time I've spent with you today. Well, thank you. I'm very touched by everything you just said, and I love you too. You cheered me up. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. Well, my friends, that's a wrap for today's episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I want to thank my guest, Mariana L., for sharing her story, and thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you please tell others how to listen to it? Of course, you can listen to many more interviews in this series by following the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, and other podcast apps. Or tell Siri, Google Assistant, or Alexa, play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, to hear every show, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.